Life is full of small lessons if you are willing to stop and pay attention to them. Everyone has a story, and the points where our stories intersect not only define us, those are the moments where we find out who we really are and if we're willing to grow. I'm Noah Chalaya, and I invite you to join us as we dive into marriage and relationships on this episode of The School of Hard Knocks. this dream of winding up with the perfect soulmate. Proverbs 31.10 says, Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. If there is such a thing as a perfect soulmate, I know I found her. So I invited my wife Sarah to join us on this episode. Hi Sarah, welcome in. Hi, thank you. We have a lot to cover. I know you and I have been in a relationship. Um, it's really been just the first relationship for both of us. Mm -hmm. And so that's been kind of different than those of our peers. I think we've been really blessed. So let's go back to 2004, the the night that you and I met. And this is kind of a fun story. I got a call from a friend of mine and he said, do you want to come over to my house and hang out? And and so I did. And uh, we played some video games and we were kind of hanging out. And one of the things that him and I were both interested in at the time uh, was BB guns. Uh, we called another one of our friends and said, hey, do you want to come over? And so we're sitting down in the basement. And for the first couple of hours, we're just shooting at cardboard boxes and, and various different things. And <laughs> it, it, lo- one thing led to another, and uh, it ended up being where some mice had escaped from my friend's snake pit thing. Then it was actually the food that they fed the snake. And so his mother said, well, playing with those BB guns, just go take care of the mice. So we thought that was fun. And maybe we got a little bit carried away. And somewhere during that, I guess, looking back on it, horrific uh, experience, you showed up. And so you had gotten invited and you had come over and we had known each other kind of tangentially from school. But I don't think I'm not sure we'd even really had a conversation prior to that time that we went over to our friend's house. I don't think we had. It was, I think, four or five days before my birthday and I was having a birthday uh, party. And so I, I invited you and you accepted and so I guess I'll start with this. What was it that originally drew you to me? Why did you accept that invitation to begin with? You seemed nice. I was always interested in new friends, and you were already friends with some of my other friends, and I thought we could have a lot of fun. There's no real draw to a relationship. This isn't something like, I've just met the love of my life. You know, It's nothing like that. It's no. just a casual, hey, this seems better than sitting at home by myself kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit more than that. I was genuinely interested in you as a person and a friend, but yeah, that's what it was. You come over, we hang out, we start to kind of click, and we develop a really strong friendship right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the thing that stood out to me most was that you enjoyed talking. Going back to kind of our peer groups, I think a lot of people in that 15, 16-year-old age are more physical people and are more interested in physical things and or interested in social type things, right? Mm -hmm. The whole boyfriend, girlfriend experience kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And one one of the things that I think that stood out for both of us is we liked talking. We liked connecting and bonding early mm-hmm. on. And I think that provided a, a really powerful basis for the rest of our relationship. Mm-hmm. But when I asked you originally, this is in December now, I said, hey, you know, I, I'd really like to go out with you. I'd really like to take you on a date. I would really like to become a thing. You told me no. <laughs> you said, no, I'm not interested in that. What led to that decision? 
I wasn't looking for a serious relationship. I viewed you in a serious light because you were my friend. And that is not at all what I was interested in. I was interested in novelty as far as relationships and not really anything long-term or committed. I was 15. So what changed? Well, I think because you were my friend and you were um, serious, like something serious to me, like I saw your interest and, you know, I liked being around you and I thought it might not be a bad thing to give a try. I'd written you a couple of letters and you decided that you were going to respond to one of these letters. So the, the letter that you wrote me back hey, you're kind of a cool person and I wouldn't mind giving this thing a go. Um, but you wrote it in a very interesting way. I wrote it in binary code. I figured it was uh, appropriate for the person I was writing it for and I thought it'd be kind of funny. It's the language in which computers think, right? And so there's only two possible choices, on or off. And based on that that metric of on or off, you can formulate a series of numbers and assign a series of values to them, and then you can assign letters to those values. So it's like a three-step conversion process. And I, did I ever actually convert the letter, or did we just get impatient and eventually just go online and convert it? I know. I remember I made you at least work on it for oh, yeah. a substantial amount of time, right. but I'm not I'm not sure what the end result right. was. Right. It was kind of funny because like, I think we kind of both knew what the general gist of that letter was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really more of an exercise in frustration, uh, but or but, amusement, depending on your perspective. Right. Yeah. From your side, I could totally see that in this day and age, Sarah, especially in 2019, with the rise of the Me Too movement and the this concentration on on respecting women's decisions and stuff like that. I mean, this kind of flies in the face of all of that, doesn't it? Because for two and a half months, I kind of badgered you and I'm like, hey, hey, we should be a thing. Hey, this is really cool. Hey, I really enjoy this. We should officially make this a thing. And did you appreciate that consistency or was it overbearing? And and it's possible I misunderstand where other people are coming from. I guess I can only give my perspective. But for me, you were never disrespectful or overly persistent. If I told you no for a conversation, you would drop it. And when you did bring ideas like that back up, it was in a gentle way that I didn't mind or feel uncomfortable with. We always liked spending time together. Mm-hmm. Even after you had agreed to, to to kind of steadily date me, we started spending more time together to the point that basically, um, you know, we would get out of school and we'd meet out by the locker bays. We'd go out to my 1994 Ford Explorer that had like 17 million antennas on it uh, because I was a geek and a nerd. And uh, and we would drive over to my house and we'd spend the rest of the day together mm-hmm. until it was time for you to go home. And then I would drive you home. And then we I think we would spend some time over at your parents' house. And then you'd go to bed and we'd wake up. I'd pick you back up for school. So other than class and, you know, some extracurricular activities, you and I were doing everything together. What role do you think that played in our overall relationship? I think that we got to know each other really well, which was a pretty cool thing. I think that we, you know, we did a lot of that talking when we had, like you said, a really strong basis to form the rest of our relationship on. Do you think God played a role in the, in the basis of our relationship because we were so in line from a religious standpoint? Yeah, I think that was the one of the things that we did talk about was, you know, what we believed religiously. And I do think that that similarity and that commitment to God was the most important and is the most important basis of our relationship. So this is sophomore year. We get done with sophomore year. We go into our junior year. Obviously, junior and senior year, our relationship kind of continues to, to bloom. And I, I would say that was kind of the point, at least for me, where things started to mature and stabilize, right? Because we'd kind of gotten off of that honeymoon period, Mm -hmm. that pure emotional draw, Mm -hmm. and started to get into some of the commitment aspects where, you know, you were going to be gone for soccer uh, 
you know, practice and games and so on and so forth. And so all of a sudden, you know, we're spending a little bit less time together, but we're, I would say we're almost more committed. And we mm-hmm. also, that was, the, I think that was kind of the point where we started to run into some adversity, right? We started to hit some points where family was asking for various things and we had to make some decisions. Like, for example, are we not going to spend Christmas together? Are we going to spend Christmas at your parents mm-hmm. or at my parents? And so we started doing some of those things together. And I I distinctly remember, I can't remember for sure if it was junior year or sophomore year, but I remember a year trying to run around to please all of the various families. But my overriding goal was that you and I spent Christmas together. I I knew I wanted to see my family on Christmas, but I wanted to spend it with you first and foremost and then include them if possible. And that kind of led to a rough road. Yeah, I think there's always adjustment that goes with, you know, combining lives. Not that we were married yet at that point, but... But yeah, I think that was kind of the beginnings of that for us. And and it, there's always things that you have to work out. We didn't move in together uh, until we were married. Um, so we lived separately, but we spent a lot of time together. And you hear a lot from counselors. You hear a lot from advocates. You hear a lot from people that have been in relationships. Man, how could you ever marry somebody without having lived with them? You wouldn't know even you know what color drapes to choose from and, and, and those kinds of things. And so they see it as an impediment to their relationship if they haven't lived together. Why do you think that works so well for us? I think that was something that was really important to me because of my religious beliefs and how I was raised. And it's, I guess, one of the reasons why marriage, I guess, when we did get to it was such a big deal to me. I guess it was just, it was... um something I'd always viewed like in relationship, not just to your, you know, commitment to another person who you love, but as like kind of an integral thing to my commitment to God. Like if I made the commitment of marriage, it was a commitment to first and foremost to God. And so, you know, there are for me specific beliefs that went along with that. And that made me feel like I was honoring God. And I really appreciated the opportunity to do that. If you were going back to your 15, 16 year old self, which is about when you and I met, what kind of advice would you give to a 16 year old you? I would tell myself, you know, if you're looking to get involved with someone, do they love God more than they love you? Because I think that's the best basis of a relationship. Because I think God is really what cements people together. We all have our own issues and our own problems. But I think with God, any two people can work to overcome that. So you don't really believe in this idea of a perfect soulmate or or the perfect person. You believe that God could take any two people and bring them together? Yeah, I do. And as long as there's a commitment to that God, then then you have success. Yeah, because I think, I guess to me, a commitment to God means a commitment to your spouse. We graduate high school. We enroll in college. We begin in college. I propose over summer break. A lot of people would say too soon. A lot of people would say not the right time to get married, right? But I think for you and me, we got to a point where we just realized this is going to be the rest of our life one way or the other. And so we just have to make a decision Are we going to embrace that and take the next steps, both legally and from a religious standpoint and from a commitment standpoint? Or are we going to kind of stagnate and wait? And if we were going to wait, there should have been a reason. And I don't think either you or I could could find one. We couldn't find a reason to to wait. And so we went ahead and did it. And of course, we didn't have a lot of money back then. And we didn't have a lot. We had even less time than we had money. I don't remember ever getting any pushback from my family. But did you get any criticism? No, actually, I think my family was very supportive for such a young marriage, and I really appreciated their support. Because we were doing it one way or the other mm-hmm. at that point. So we get married. Did anything change for you that night? Yeah. I mean, it, it really, for me, it was mostly an emotional thing. Like I've said before, it was really a big commitment for me before God, and it, it, 
it changed how I viewed myself. I viewed myself. Now I wasn't just Sarah. I was someone's wife. That was very meaningful for me. And it was a big change. And it was interesting because this change comes at the exact time that we're going through college and you were going through nursing school, which is not a low demand schooling. This is something that requires a tremendous amount of your time, a tremendous amount of your attention, a a tremendous amount of your focus. And yet I've always felt like I always had first dibs at Sarah's attention if and when I needed it. And I know that was something that was super important to me. And it was one of those things that always called me to reciprocate that, right? Anytime you've ever asked me for something or approached me, I always knew I really had to give you first priority because that's the way that you've always treated me. And I think that understanding of priority and that understanding of commitment is something that a lot of relationships lack. I think a lot of people say to themselves, well, I do love my wife. I do love my husband, but I also have responsibilities at work. And I also have responsibilities to my extended family. And I also have responsibilities to my friends. And I also, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And I think that to a certain degree, there's only so much time in a given day. And we have to be able to prioritize that time. And if you want a strong marriage, you have to be intentional about spending time. That really worked well for you and me because I think both of us agree that you and I just kind of fit well. Talk about that. I do agree that we fit well, and I think God can help any two people fit well. But with you and me in particular, I think you are very emotional and very passionate about things, and I tend to be more logical and, I guess, logic-driven. So I think me on my own is a little bit boring, and you on your own is a little bit uncontrolled sometimes and just too wild. But I think together we balance each other really well. I have vision, you have execution. I have feeling, you have reason. And mm-hmm. when you combine those two, thing, we, two things, we make for a, an extraordinarily powerful team. And then above all, both of us have this strong commitment to God. And so we're both looking to the same place for input. We're lo- both looking to the same place for authority. We're lo- both looking to the same place to make decisions. So if the answer is clear to one of us, we that person just brings it to the other one, says, hey, this is what I believe the Bible says. This is what I believe we should be doing with our life. And nine out of 10 times we agree. And the one out of 10 times that we don't agree, it doesn't turn into a knockout drag out match. It turns into, well, let's look at the Bible and see what it says and see if we can figure out the answer from there. Right. And I think that central point of authority, that central agreed upon um, third party has been completely invaluable to us like i really struggle to understand how people that don't have that function i guess for me like it it helps with my prioritization as well you know you said like everyone has all those competing commitments and do i honor this commitment or you know my husband needs this and it's really hard to work that out in practicality but i think the bible you know even if it doesn't make the actual decision easier it does give you a little bit of a framework as far as what is important I'm a stubborn person. I think most people that have worked with me for any period of time figure out that I'm a very hard-headed person and I'm a very determined person. And I would imagine to a certain extent that can be difficult to live with. But I also imagine that that has some advantages. When we butt heads, it's, you know, it's an unpleasant experience for both of us, but very useful in that, you know, you, I really look to you for great decisions and, you know, you are so passionate about what is right and you do have good vision, you know, you, you're emotional and you really, you feel what's right. And you help me to feel that too. The other side of that though, right, is when you have, like, there's a lot of great things to do in the world, right? And I come up with all of them at various different times. And so it's great to have a, a, another, a life partner 
that can help balance that out, right? And the other thing that you're really fantastic with is determining logistics. Ideas are cheap, but the actual execution of those ideas and and following through with the steps and calculating the cost and coming up with if the end cost is worth, if the juice is worth the squeeze, that's something that I've always looked to you for value. And part of the reason that that works is because we have worked on building this trust for years. We've worked on building this trust. And so when I come up with a harebrained idea, you always give it the time of day. You always slow down and say, well, hold on a second now. Is this actually beneficial? Yes, it is. How would we go about implementing that? What would that cost? Would the juice be worth the squeeze? And I would say nine out of 10 times that really works well for us, but that only works because there's trust, right? If I'd come with you to you with a harebrained idea and it was constantly dismissed, I would stop bringing them up to you. And likewise, if every time you just said yes to everything I ever suggested without any critical thought, uh, we'd wind up in a really bad place. And so it's that balance. It's that equilibrium. I think that really brings us through. I wonder sometimes where did that trust come from? And part of it was because you and I weren't really in an established relationship before each other. I do think that helps. I think the fact that we've always worked through things rather than having that experience where, yes, I've, um, you know, I've committed myself to this person. And then for whatever reason, one of us, you know, just says, I can't do this anymore. Like we've, we've never really had that experience and we've never developed that, that element of, of mistrust or that element of, well, maybe this person won't take care of me. I think we've been really blessed with that. And so I do that think that over time, you know, every time we, we have kind of a disagreement and come back together. Um, it does build trust. I know that, you know, regardless of how far apart we are right now on this issue, um, you'll work with me and we'll come back together. So some people have gotten burned and then they get dropped and then they, you know, they, they cut and run. And so they have, and so the other person is left dealing with the fact that they were burned, but then they were also abandoned. And, that hurts like a bandaid getting ripped off and eventually there's no skin left under there. And so the thought of putting something else and letting something else stick to that, to that raw wound is, is terrifying to most people. And they spend the rest of their lives, I think, trying to rebuild that trust. Some of the relationship norms in 2019 confuse the heck out of me. And I don't really know exactly how to place them. And I get confused. And I remember seeing on social media, Somebody talking about, you know, that you can really trust your significant other if they're comfortable sitting around with you with their phone facing up. And it was a meme, right? So it's just the picture of this woman sitting out with this guy and her phone is screen up. And I remember looking at that picture for a solid five minutes trying to think, why would that mean that she's a good woman, that her screen is face up? And I had to do some research on the Internet. Come to find out people typically store their phones face down. Or lay them down on the table because if they were to get a text or a Facebook message or whatever from their significant from their former significant other, then that would lead to a fight. And so, of course, the first thing is I don't really have any former significant others to get texts from. But even if I did, it's nothing I would ever be interested in hiding from you because if I can't share it with you, it's not an experience worth having. And so that level of trust, I think, has built up over time to the point that we have delusioned ourselves away from social norms. Anybody that meets you in person would describe you as a quiet person, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say that knowing you as well as I do, you're the very opposite of a quiet person in that you almost always have an opinion and it's almost always backed up with some sort of logic or reason. You just don't feel the need to share it all the time. Why is that? 
I think sometimes it's not worth sharing depending on what you want. You know, I value a relationship with you over sharing an opinion that has no relevance to us, for instance. That leads to some interesting social situations, doesn't it? Because we'll go out to eat. And uh, just one example, I'll make the order for us because I know what you're ordering because you ordered the same thing every time we go to a particular restaurant. And of course, I order the same thing every time I go to a particular restaurant. And more than once, somebody has made an offhanded comment about, oh, so you pick out what what your wife eats, right? Well, it's funny because obviously you and I know each other well enough to know that there's no way you're going to let me pick out what you want to eat. You know what you want to eat. And, you know, it's oftentimes drastically different than what I would eat. But you have learned to kind of rely on me for those social situations. Yeah, I just don't typically enjoy social situations, and I enjoy them far more when you are kind of there as a buffer. Talk about intentionality. You and I, especially in the last few months, we've kind of hit a stride in which we schedule time for each other because we're going through some various life changes, and um, that has kind of led us in different directions. And one of the things that I know is as important to you as it was to me was that We're on the same page facing the world. And so we've been very intentional about that time together. Talk to the next person about that, the next young woman that is going through a relationship and why that's important. Any relationship goes through easier times and harder times. And I think anytime you're, you know, overscheduled, overcommitted, it's, you know, especially when you're working towards the same goals, it's easy to spend time working on those things and not maintaining your relationship with each other. And I think scheduling time that we're intentional about and we say these are the things we're going to do and (laughs) these are the things we're not going to work on, I think that that really helps. The number one thing that people fight about is money. I can say with complete honesty and total equivocation, I don't remember a time in our entire marriage, heck, our entire relationship since the day we met, we've ever had a fight about money in any way, shape or form. Why is that? To a certain degree, we're lucky because we come from the same you know, uh, thought process with that. Neither of us are comfortable with borrowing money. And that's a great way to start, you know, with an agreement like that. I do think it's important to, you know, talk with your significant other out loud about, you know, this is what I believe. This is what you believe. You know, are we kind of headed in the same direction with that? Because it is a big issue for people. And I think other than that, I think make sure you have your priorities straight. People are more important than money. I guess for me and you, I believe that you're, you as the husband make ultimate decisions with stuff like that. Um, and I think that for me and you, that's really worked well to kind of outline how we are going to spend money. And it does help us avoid fights. Another area that you and I avoid fights in that, again, I see a lot of my friends and colleagues, they run into problems in this area is the concept of going out or free time, Right. I can't count the number of times that somebody has asked, said, hey, can you stop over and help with the project or can we do these things? And of course, you and I have a a communication system in which we're constantly talking uh, back and forth to each other. So you're aware of all these things. But I will tell them, yeah, it's not a problem. I'm going to head out. And I've I've had numerous people say, man, how does your wife, how is she always okay with you doing these things, you know, especially like on the weekends or what as it relates to work, sometimes it's days at a time that I'm gone or in a different state or sometimes even in a different country. How do you deal with that? Well, I guess for me, it's it's that we're always kind of working from the same place. Um, You know, you're open with me about, hey, these are the things I want to get done and here's how how it's going to take or how long it's going to take. And I I try to use that time to do other stuff that I, you know, enjoy doing my own on my own. You know, I, you know, maybe spend some extra time doing something with the kids that you don't particularly enjoy that I want to, or, you know, I, um, 
you know, just do projects at home that would be boring to do with another person. And I'd rather spend our time together. Let's talk about fights. It's something that every established relationship goes through. What's your general premise for dealing with or coping with a fight? Because one of the things that I have noticed is I'm a fairly confrontational person. If I come into a situation and I think that something is different than it ought to be or that something hasn't been thought through, I'm going to vocalize it and I'm going to say, hey, this is not right and I don't understand this and let's figure that out. And I feel like throughout the course of our relationship, you've always been kind of the peacemaker, not just with me, but with other people that that I'm in a relationship with, right? You offer really sound, sage advice of, hey, let this thing go. Hey, go ahead and take that one to the mat. You have a really wise understanding of a healthy way to handle confrontation. I think fights, when they occur, like when it's really a fight, it's typically a matter of you and your partner not knowing how to handle something well. However, I do think that getting it all out there it at least gives you the opportunity to solve a problem. And that's how I try to see it. So regardless of, you know, what hurtful things you and I are saying, um, I try to focus on this is the problem. At least it's out in the open. Let's see what we can do to fix it. You don't ever get mad, mad. Like you might get internally upset, but you don't, you don't show outward expression of like real anger. Why is that? I don't think it's an effective way to interact with people. I think when you allow yourself to get mad or you, you know, yell, not that we all don't do it at one point or another, but I think that that is really just throwing up another problem in addition to the original one you had, because now you still have to solve that problem. And sure, you might feel a little bit better that you, you know, got to really express yourself or something like that. But, uh, but now you have to deal with the other feelings that you've potentially hurt as well. Does it destroy trust? When you trust someone to be able to bring them problems or help them solve, have them help you solve problems, and then you get a fight or a reaction like that, yeah, I think it it does break down trust. As it relates to kids, this is another thing that I think that you and I uh, differ a little bit with the way that other people treat their relationships. I know that you and I have had numerous conversations in which we said, listen, we love our kids equivocally, up and down, backwards and forwards. Both of us would, in a moment's notice, laid on our lives to to protect or to better our kids' lives. I mean, they're, they're just everything to us. And at the same time, we've always held our relationship in a separate category from the relationship that we have with our kids, right? We both love our kids and we're both there for our kids, but we always make time for you and I. I guess for me, while all relationships take work, it's very natural and easy to love your kids. And it takes a lot of learning, in my opinion, to learn to love another adult that you didn't, you know, they're not part of your family. They are someone you chose. Um, and I think that practically that means that you need to be more intentional about that relationship. And I guess from a priority standpoint, I think that, um, you know, the relationship, you know, first of all, between God and a family, but second of all, between a husband and a wife is kind of the basis of a family. And if I want, I feel like if I want to provide my children with a stable and healthy family, that starts with my relationship with you. The TV show Breaking Bad, well known for its portrayal of a high school chemistry teacher that gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And his only choice, he believes, to provide for his family and and meet his 
hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of medical bills that are going to be upcoming is that he can turn to producing uh, crystal meth. And so he uses his knowledge to be able to develop this uh, this perfect formula for methamphetamine and produces it and starts selling it under the rug. And essentially, really from episode one or episode two, he starts to pull away from his wife and his family, right? And the lies start and the deception starts. When he does come to his wife and present honestly and openly what his activities have been, his reasoning for those activities she loses it, right? I mean, she just, she goes nuts. She wants nothing to do with him. She's terrified of him. She's, she doesn't want him near her kids, like all of those things. My allegiance is not to the government. It's not to some law. My allegiance is to my wife. My allegiance is to my partner. I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's, that's really fantastic. And then you and I had a conversation about it. This really terrible thing happened. I've committed this horrible act and I need help cleaning it up. You wouldn't ask why you just be there to help. Why? Well, I think while it's, you know, everyone has you know, moral ideals outside of their relationship. I think I know you well enough to know that we're on the same page about s- stuff like that. And if something happened, what was the reason? Because, you know, the person I know and love wouldn't just go out and murder someone. Something happened. There was some extenuating circumstance. What was it and how can I help? What advice would you give to the new couple that's starting out I guess the advice that I would give is think about what love means to you and what kind of spouse you want to be. Um, I think that if you think about it, love is caring for another person. It's not dependent on what you get back. So I think that you should approach your relationship in that manner. What can I give my partner? How can I make their life better? And how can I stay committed regardless of what I feel like I am or getting back? or am not getting back because we all have different ideas about that kind of stuff and different things that we want out of a relationship or things that we expect from our partner. And it just takes time to, to work through that. You know, even if your partner is working hard at, you know, and trying to give you exactly what you want, like it just, there's going to be misunderstandings. Just have forgiveness of that and concentrate on God and concentrate on putting your partner first. You could do anything in the world, and I would still stay married to you, and I would still stay committed to you. I could do anything in the world, and I believe that you would still stay committed to me. You would still stay married to me. To me, like I said before, it's part of my commitment to God. So, you know, once I agreed to marry you, yes, you have my commitment. We have really been uh, very blessed in our situation, you know, just to find each other when we were young and to, you know, just not deal with a lot of the, the issues that other people have had to. Um, so I guess I'm just grateful for that. And I'm grateful for where we are. What would you say to somebody that is listening to this and going, man, I just, I don't have that with my partner. Like, I don't have any of that. And I just don't feel like that's a possibility for my partner and I. I think don't sell yourself or your partner short. You can always change your own actions, you know, regardless of what you feel like you are or aren't getting back from your partner. They're probably working a lot harder to meet your needs than you're aware of. At least that's been my experience. But I think you can always take pride in how you love another person. You can always say what, you know, ask the question, what can I do for you? The only thing more exciting than the last 12 years I've spent with Sarah are the decades of experiences that lie ahead of us. I don't know exactly where our path will take us, but I know I'm excited to do it with her. 
I wanted to explore the idea of marriage from a different perspective, a relationship far different from mine, one in which I could learn something new. The halls here at Leighton Broadcasting are filled with a diverse crowd of people from all different walks of life. So I met up with our promotions director, Hannah Carlson, and her life partner who were recently married to see a different side of marriage, one in which I had no experience with. When you were growing up, at some point you realized your interests and desires were different than other girls your age. When did that first hit you? I think it probably first hit me as around the age of a ninth grader because it was the first time I realized that it was possible to like someone that wasn't a boy. Um, That wasn't to say that I didn't have crushes on boys because I did because I was thought I was supposed to and then as a ninth grader um in the environment I grew up in I pushed those feelings down very very deep and I didn't explore them again until I was on my own in college and had moved out of the house but looking back now I can see that even at the age of probably like six years old I picked my babysitters because of how cute they were and like that was a conscious conscious decision I was like I want that one because she's so pretty like that was something I did and does a six-year-old say hey I'm gay because I like my babysitter no, but I knew she was pretty and I wanted to be around her. Did religion play a role in why you felt a need to push feelings down as opposed to embrace them? Yeah, so I grew up very, very religious. Um, and it wasn't so much like I was afraid of going to hell. It was that shame that I felt with it, um, that religious shame, that religious guilt, and knowing where my family stood on that in that manner that I didn't want to disappoint them either. It wasn't the fear of, oh, I'm going to go to hell. It was, I can't disappoint them because I know their morals and I know their foundation as well. When you actually did come out, when you actually did decide to go on the record and say, hey, this is who I am. Talk about that moment. How did that go? Um, so I came out to my mom on accident while I was getting my oil changed. Um, and we didn't, we didn't talk about it. That was kind of how that went. And later that night she caught me. I was having a midnight snack and she goes, Oh, I thought the snacking would end now that you that your secret's out. I was like, I wasn't stress eating. I just like I like food. Um, but so we just didn't talk about it for a very, very long time. Um, a year later, I came out to my father in a letter, and he called me and I was like, I'll always love you. You're always gonna be my daughter. But again, we didn't talk about it for a very long time. Um, and then they did say like, I do, I can't accept this because because Jesus. That was their feeling of it, is they couldn't accept it. And I was like, well, do you still love me? Do you think Jesus loves me? All of this stuff. And over the course of that, it has slowly turned around. Like, I'm not going to say that my parents have like turned their back on religion because they haven't or that that part of religion. But I know they love me and they accept me more than the Bible says, oh, you can't date a woman. You can't marry a woman because the Bible says a lot of other things that we can't do. And we find justifications for that. And I think they've found ways for them to not justify those things anymore either. Do you still have a, a religious belief? Do you ad- adhere to a religious? Um, I Because I grew up so religious, it's hard to say I'm not a Christian anymore. I would say I'm not a practicing Christian anymore. Um, if it came down to it, I'd probably fall more under agnostic. I believe there is something out there. I might need a little more proof. Um, because I did grow up and I always said, oh, I can hear the voice of God. Did I really hear the voice of God or was it something I wanted to feel and I told myself I was feeling so I could fit in? Do you think if it hadn't been for the conflict or the apparent conflict in which the religious establishment tells you, hey, this is something that just isn't acceptable to us and this is you have to choose. It's a fork in the road and you have to choose which path you want to go down. Do you think if that path hadn't been there, you would still 
be a self-identifying Christian today or like was your sexuality and the road that that took you? Do you think that that took you away from your religious upbringing and the church establishment or? I don't think so. Um, I do think if I, I think I think it's possible to have both. Um, there are plenty of people that are religious and a part of the LGBTQ community. There are churches that are based on that. My personal experience, though, is when I came out, my church turned their back on me. And I was like, well, that's not very Jesus of you. And so I shut down. I was like, I'm not looking for church. I'm not interested in church. I don't need Jesus right now. I just need myself and I need to heal and I need to be surrounded by like-minded people. Um, that's not to say that there's people that weren't in my church that didn't stick around and take me into their wing. But the church as the church didn't. In a lot of ways, you felt like you were abandoned by some of these people that set themselves up to be a place of hope and a, and a, and a resource for you. And then all of a sudden, what you learn to be true about yourself, that becomes more difficult to deny as age goes on, then becomes in conflict with this belief system that you hold that regardless of what you know about it and regardless of what you believe about it and regardless of the relationships that you've made now, all of a sudden those relationships are disintegrating because you have, let's call it a disagreement mm-hmm. in a, in a, in one specific area of belief that must've been really frustrating. It was. And so one thing I noticed, and I think this was part of a, what solidified it for me was in the church, you're like hate the sinner or love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, wherever you fall on that belief, that's a different topic. But if I were to meet a stranger on the street as a Christian, be like, you're gay. It's like, yep, Jesus can save you. Jesus can change you. Um, if you're doing drugs, Jesus can save you. Jesus can change you. But it was like, because I was a member, because I was on the inside, it's like, you know better. And people actually told me that was, you know better. Um, and one of the things I said to them is, I'm sorry, but this isn't something I can change. You wouldn't go to a person of a color and say, you know better. Why is your skin this color? It's something they can't change, and that's something I can't change. I don't know better. This is who I am. Elena, what, what, how did it work out for you? Uh, did you have uh, you grew up in a in a smaller town, so I'm assuming that there is a certain amount of uh, a similar belief system in which there's a more traditional model is accepted. Is that your story as well? Um. So actually, growing up, my parents were always kind of like they were okay with it. My uh, sibling's mom came out as lesbian so her and my dad got a divorce and she was always at Christmas and Thanksgiving so it was kind of something that we talked about a lot um growing up they were always like if you are gay if you don't like guys it's okay but just let us know so that we know so I mean it was kind of something we talked about it was always okay in my family and I guess at a young age I didn't know enough people outside of my family to not think otherwise so when you two met, this is a really interesting relationship that started to develop because here you have somebody that grew up in a home where it was accepted and embraced and just, hey, discover yourself and we're here to support you. And you come up in a home where your parents clearly have a deep love for you. But at the same time, there are other institutions and other factors that that play a role that cause some friction. So when you two got together, was there was there any sort of a point where, Elena, you started maybe um, – teaching Hannah or exemplifying some some healthy ways in which people embrace their own sexuality? Um, I just kind of told her not to care. It was kind of like, it's our relationship, not anybody else's. It doesn't have anything to do with your parents, or your family, or my parents, or my family, or our friends. So it's just kind of about us and what we want to do, and that's all it should be about. And Hannah, from your perspective, 
did you feel like this was a, a a new way to kind of explore your relationship or a new way to kind of explore these feelings and this uh, and these concepts and ideas with somebody who had put a lot of thought and had a lot of support and didn't spend the, their time hiding it instead spent time thinking about it and how to embrace it was that empowering or enlightening to you it definitely was elena was the first serious relationship I had with someone of the same sex, um, I dated someone else. It wasn't, I mean, it was serious in the time, but I was younger and I didn't treat it with the thought it should have. Neither did the other person. And my other relationship was with a man. So with Elena, she's right. A lot of times she said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And that was so weird to me. It's like, it does matter. These are my parents. Like the things they think about me hold such weight. And yes, they should. But at the same time, they shouldn't. Elena came to visit me first, but she visited me here in college, whereas when I went to Elena, I visited her in her parents' home, and it was so strange to me to be left alone with her parents for any length of time, but her mom's like, I just want you to know that I accept you, this is like your third week dating my daughter, but I love you, like you are welcome here, Um, this is a safe space for you. I'm fairly certain she even told me like if we were to break up, like she'd be there for me, like in that sense of you need a mom that's accepting. And at the time, it actually scared me. I was like, no, I have a mom. Like, I don't need you to be my mom. I have a mom. But now that we're married and she is my mom, like, to look back on that and to see that she never saw a part of me that wasn't worth loving or worth having and accepting means so much. And I'm not to say that my parents didn't love me, didn't accept me, because they did. But there was those things that held them back. And I'm like, I can't accept it. I can't be okay with all of you. Like, 90% of you is great. That 10% of you, there's something about it that I can't fathom and I like so now my parents and I were at that 100%. But it was so weird to be able to be free and openly gay around Elena's family then to come home to my family. And yeah, I'm talking to this girl. She's cool. But let's talk about something else. Let's not talk about my love life. At what point did that start to turn where your parents started to say, okay, this is clearly a road that Hannah is committed down and this is the road she's going down, like it or not like it. And so we have two choices here. Our choices are either to embrace her decision to the best of our ability or we can reject her decision and reject somebody who she deeply cares about and plans on spending the rest of her life and in doing that we will exclude ourselves from a major portion growing to be one of the most major portions of our daughter's life for the rest of her life i honestly like i can't pinpoint when it happened um because i know like throughout i don't think i've even told elena this but like when I first came out, part of it was like my dad didn't want me to come home with my girlfriend. Um, and my mom was like, Rob, if you do this, she will pick them and I'm not losing my daughters. Like that was that part of my mom was like, I can't lose this. I need to have this. But she still, like I said, she wasn't at 100%. Um, and up until probably like two months before our wedding, my dad, I had a conversation with him. He goes, I haven't told a single person that you're engaged. I haven't told anyone that you're getting married. I haven't told anyone that you're dating a woman. And I was like, okay like thanks like this is the biggest thing in my life and you haven't told a single person and then probably about a month before the wedding my mom called me and she goes i just think you should know like your dad called a meeting at work and he told all his captains about your engagement and like he has a couple surprises for elena at the wedding which ended up being a father-daughter dance with elena um because he's going to be her new father kind of a thing he requested a bunch of songs for the dance that had a lot of meaning and so I said, I don't know where that turnabout came or what the turnabout for him was. But all of a sudden we were at that 100%. And I can honestly say like the day of our wedding, I had no doubts that he didn't see Elena as his daughter or my mom. But um, 
my dad had the bigger hang up, I think. It was a bigger transformation. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. The, his, his speech at our wedding was themed around unconditional love. And like, I truly feel his unconditional love. How did that make you feel originally when he said that he hadn't told anybody? I think it brought about that shame that I've worked so hard to get rid of. It brought it back because it wasn't my shame, but it was that secondhand shame that he is ashamed of me, that I've done something to shame my father. And I think most children want to please their parents. They want them to be proud and to boast their accomplishments. And I mean, your child's engagement should be a huge deal. I know your children are young, but the day your daughter says, daddy, I am getting married. That is a celebration. That is they found the person that they want to spend their life with. That is a huge deal. And the fact that I had to shrink that huge deal down, they said it was shameful. When you decided that it was time that to take it to the next level, you were ready to get married. What went through your mind? Like, How did you know this is the right person? How did you know that this is the person I want to spend? I'm ready to commit to the rest of my, as you so eloquently put it, the rest of my life to. That's a major decision. How did you both arrive at that? Elena's giving me a look so I don't know what her answer is but there was one day we were having it wasn't a fight but it was just an argument a bickering and I go this is the person I want to fight with for the rest of my life Um, the person I want to get through the bad things with that the person who takes the time to understand why I'm angry understand why I'm hurt the person who wipes away my tears even if I've hurt them and they don't want to wipe away my tears like she was that person I was like this is what I want she can she does like she completes me that's so cliche but she does um, where I am, where I shy away, Elena's not afraid to be bold and things like that. It's just like, she really is my other half. Elena, what do you look for in a relationship when you were, when you were first, you're on a, you're on a dating site and, uh, you know, like you said, you, you decided to slide into Hannah's inbox. How did that work? What were you looking for? What were you hoping to get out of the relationship? What was it that you saw in Hannah that was so inspiring and attractive to you? I guess I just like want to be with someone who's fun who makes me laugh and so one of the first conversations we had was it was over christmas break and hannah was home visiting her family and she was super random she told me she was going upstairs for oreos and doritos and i think that was like a moment i was like oh yeah this is gonna go somewhere like i like those things like i want to eat oreos and doritos with her so i guess someone who can just hang out and someone who's chill and as relaxed as i am what role does trust if any play in your relationship huge I think that right now we both have very different hours, so it's very rare for us to be able to sit down and actually hang out together. So without that trust, it would kind of be like, oh, is she actually where she says she is? What is she doing? What am I doing? So without that, I don't think that you know the relationship we have today would be a thing, especially since we did start as long distance. When you start a relationship online, one of the best things about that is it is a real window into somebody's character, right? You're really seeing their actual character. You're not paying attention to any of the distracting things because the only method of communication you have is over that text or over that, you know, chat or whatever. The first time you meet somebody, there's a real risk. It may not work out or that you might be off put by something or, you know, they, they just might not be the same person that you were expecting. So how did that moment look for you two when you first met each other? It was not cute. Um, so we had the, so I guess Elena came to visit me um, in college. I was still, I was a senior. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had this huge trip planned out over her spring break. Uh, she was supposed to get here on like a Friday and we're going to hang out for like the week. Well, that weekend, a huge storm was supposed to roll through. So she's like, I'm going to leave on Wednesday. And I was like, 
do it. I'll be here. I'm ready. Well, I, I think you hit the storm on your way up. So she, or she just had to leave late for some reason. So she got here at like 11 o'clock at night. I'd already changed into my pajamas. Um, there was no parking spot right in front of my apartment. So I was like, go around the complex. So I'm running through the complex in my pajamas. She gets over there. And you think like, this is it. The moment I'm meeting this person who like we've had like four or five months of buildup and it's going to be great. I gave her a side hug and I shook her hand. Really? Yeah. I completely wimped out. <laughs> And I was like, hi. <laughs> was it nerves or was it uh, what was it nerves or was it just that you were so exhausted from the day and the buildup for that moment that had finally arrived that and now it's also so late and it's cold and there's all these other invariables. Was it was it nerves or was it just exhaustion? I think it was nerves. A lot of it was nerves. And not the same like. You're right. When you're texting, like we'd FaceTime. And it's like, I know you like I genuinely knew her. To go back when you said like that thing about long distance relationships, the thing is, within like the first couple of weeks of a long distance relationship, or even like we weren't we were not dating, we waited to till we met to decide if we wanted to date. But it was I'm either going to be all in on this, or I'm going to be all out because this is going to take too much of my time, too much heartbreak if we get into this in a year and it goes south. Um, and so I knew her, but then I saw her face to face for the first time, and it's like you are a stranger physically to me. You're a stranger. And this might, I don't know how to like explain this without sounding weird, but it's like, I respected her so much that I wouldn't kiss a stranger, but she's also this person that I have every intention to date. And so it's like, you are a stranger. I want to get to not physically know you in that sense, but like, I want to spend time with you. I want to learn the way you move, like just be in your presence before I cross that boundary. Hindsight being 2020, if you were to go back, what would you give advice to somebody who is starting a long distance relationship today? Don't go in with any expectations, just kind of um, communication is huge. Making plans to see each other every every month, every month at least for a weekend um, and take turns. Don't like you come to me all the time because that's not realistic. Or fair. And you don't learn. I learned more about you when I came to Sioux City than I learned about you when you're in Grand Forks. And not even like in the, I learned your favorite color is blue. I don't mean that. But I was like, show me Sioux City. And you sh- you show me like where the 4th of July things are, um, the painted water tower, the Sioux City sign. And now when we pass those, it's like, I remember this place. I know your hometown. I know parts of you. I know this is your high school. Um, things like that. I, I know you more because I came to your town. You both talk a lot about communication and intentionality, right? Like both of you are making an intentional decision to see each other once a month. Both of you are making an intentional decision to communicate often. Has that translated well into marriage? I say definitely because now we intentionally have, it's usually Mondays, but we intentionally have a date night, um, whether that's just supper or we get something, we come home and we sit on the couch. But we do have very different hours. Elena's weekend is Sunday and Monday, where I have a traditional weekend, but I also have a second job. So a lot of times I'm working over my traditional weekend. Um, And so it's like we either have our date night or it's like, hey, we both have Wednesday night off. Like we're going to sit on the couch and we're going to watch Netflix. It's that intentionality of we need to sit Um, or even just like normal married couple stuff, like talking about budgets and saving and those things is like we have to be intentional we have to have these hard talks um so i think that communication and intentionality is really transferred over 
talk about some of those mechanical things. So when you come into budgeting or you come in, you're, you're married for the first time. Obviously, I think you guys lived together beforehand. Yeah, we yeah. did. Um, we lived together for like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless so, you ask my grandparents, we didn't live together. So some of those things had kind of gotten worked out. Right. But like going into a relationship, rather you were married or not, at some point you decided to combine finances, combine households, combine decisions Walk me through that process. What did that look like for you? So actually, uh, we're still kind of in the mindset of I'm my own person. Hannah's her own person. She works two jobs. I work my job. We have different paychecks. We deserve to keep those paychecks separate. So when it comes to like things like the dogs or household things, we put it together. We'll split that payment in half. But otherwise, my paycheck's mine. Hers is hers. We have, we're working on getting a joint savings because um, someday we do want to start a family and want to have that emergency savings for our future. But otherwise, if there's stuff and money that I want to play with, it's mine to do so as long as, you know, I'm able to meet Hannah 50-50 on the responsibilities. And even like things as small as groceries. I mean, for a while we did split groceries. It'd be one week I'd buy the groceries, the next week she'd buy groceries because we're buying roughly the same things. It was roughly the same payment. But it kind of got to the point where I was like, I don't want to eat what you're eating. Um, and that was due to like a diet and personal choices. Um, and I was like, do you care if we just each buy our own groceries? And that worked for us. And even as a married couple, that works for us. We buy our own groceries. We go grocery shopping together, but we buy our own groceries. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to go snack on Elena's food and she's not going to snack on mine. Or I might say, Hey, I'm going to buy us Chinese food for dinner tonight. Like it's my treat. Um, but also I think at the same time, like growing into a married couple, I look at what my parents Um, the example they set for us and we always had family dinners at six o'clock and so i am trying to make more of a family like an effort for a family dinner whether it's heating up in the oven while we're coming home from work or in the crock pot and that is a labor of love and it's a labor that i want to provide because that's something that i grew up with and so those meals i purchased but we eat them together kind of a thing what are some of the other things that you both do to try to maintain that relationship like even with the budget it sounds like there's a lot of intentionality there right you've put some thought into how are we going to manage these finances well for us it's going to work better to keep those separate and we'll come together with mutual benefit and that's there's a certain level of communication that has to occur and a certain level of intentionality that occurs for that to work how does that work the other direction where you have things that you want you have shared goals and shared experiences that you want to do is the goal over time to combine those is the goal over time to keep them separate, but have a, a, a shared finance thing for building a family and, and having shared experiences. I think, I think it's kind of one of those things that we're growing into because I mean, we have talked about having kids, but we're also only been married for three months. So it's like, that's a journey. We're not ready to plunge into But It's like, we've talked like, Hey, we want this joint savings account. Um, excuse me. So that when we do have children, Maybe we're both, instead of, like I said, contributing 5% of our paycheck, instead of saying, I'm going to give this much, um, it's that percentage that goes towards the family, towards the household. And I mean, maybe someday when we have kids, we're going to say, this is completely not accurate. I need access to your account. You need access to mine. Let's look at that. But at this point in our life, I don't look at either one of us as the provider of the household, um, which kind of maybe goes back to the saying, like, who's the man in the relationship? That's the point, like, neither of us are. But we both financially and otherwise we both have strengths that the other one doesn't um like personally i'm i don't like to clean the shower but she cleans the shower but she doesn't like to do the clean the sink so i clean the sink like that has nothing to do with the finances but that's an insight into our relationship of how we balance each other out and so 
when I provide for the dogs, she's going to get groceries that week or she's going to pay for our date night kind of a thing. Does the fact that you share a gender, does that help? Uh, do you see, a, do you, do you notice something? Um, how do I phrase this? Does the fact that you share a gender help you make decisions with more commonality than a traditional couple? I think so. Oh. I think it kind of throws tradition out the window. I don't know how a same gendered relationship is supposed to work because it's not something I learned about as a kid and it's not something that anybody taught me in school and we didn't talk about it in health class. Like, I don't know how this is supposed to go. So it's kind of like we get to decide, we get to make our own rules, we get to make our own tradition and I don't have to base it off of anything else and I don't have to have a stereotype of what it's supposed to be like. And, and H- Hannah, you're making some faces, so I'm guessing you don't... Well, you don't- so- I definitely agree with that point of it where it's like, especially for our wedding, the whole point was this is our wedding. We get to do what we want because there are no rules like no LGBTQ wedding has to look exactly like the other one, which straight couples, your wedding doesn't have to look like anybody else's either. You can do what you want. Um, But at the same time, like for making those decisions, I and I don't mean to say this in like women are emotional creatures. We're both, I think, more emotional about things. We're more passionate about things. And especially going back to the wedding. What little girl hasn't pictured her wedding day since she was five? When I say we fought over the stupidest things, we fought over the stupidest things. That looking back, I'm just glad I married you. I don't care yeah. what color our wedding was, what flower we had or didn't have. Which in the moment, it was a big deal. I really mm-hmm. wanted blue and orange, and that was stupid. But I'm glad we went with. <laughs> I'm glad we went with pink. What does a fight look like? Is are you are you the kind that have like knockdown drag out kind of fights? Or is it more of bickering? Is it, it both? Yeah, no. I mean, it, it looks like me overreacting and crying, and then Hannah just like rolling her eyes and saying, "Oh my god, you're dramatic." No, that's not true. Yes, uh, hangry is definitely a real term yes. in our house. Um, I think Elena experiences it more than I do. Um, and like I said, we do bicker, and we very rel- very seldom have a fight where I'd be like, this is a blowout fight. Um, but when we do, we just give each other the space until we're ready to talk rashly. And whether that means like, hey, I went and had a snack, took a nap, like whatever that means, or it's just, hey, I've cooled off, we come together and we can both say like, this is my point, and this is where you were wrong, but this is where I was wrong. Um, and kind of where Elena said, I roll my eyes, and I'm like, what are you doing? No. Um, I think part of this relationship because Elena is so supportive of me and she's she's taught me to have my own voice as I've learned to say, like, I'm not going to apologize for something that I didn't do. And so when she's like, you're doing this, this, and this, I maybe did one of those things and I will apologize for that one, but I'm not going to come to you and say, I'm sorry just to end the fight because I also know that I deserve your apology. And I think that goes to the respect and that communication and that intentionality between us. And I think, of all the nights we've ever gone to bed, I think we've gone to bed angry one time. And I'm pretty sure we woke up at four in the morning and made up anyways. Which is frustrating because growing up, I guess my parents always said, don't go to bed mad, don't go to bed mad. But realistically, like, there's no clock on how long I get to be angry and nobody gets to tell me how I can feel. And she goes to bed at 11. So if we get in a fight at 1030, there's not, sometimes there's not 30 minutes that I'm over it. So... Going to bed mad, I feel like is sometimes it happens. Like, and I don't feel bad about it anymore. But the first time it happened, I was like, "Oh my god, my mom told me not to do this," but it is okay, and, and it's something I wish someone would have told me. And I think I've learned a lot from the phrase, "It's okay to forgive, but not to forget." Um, 
those nights that we've gone to bed mad, except I think it was been one night. I'm mm-hmm. fairly certain, and I'm trying to say that to break. Like, haha, we're the perfect. <laughs> no, but um, no matter what happens, at the end of the day, I will always forgive her. And whether I've forgotten and let the sting of that go, but if I say we were to go to bed mad and I were to wake up in the night and Elena's not breathing anymore, I wouldn't go to. I wouldn't live my life thinking, "Oh my god, the last thing I said was we were so mad at each other," because I think even knowing her, I know that she's forgiven me that no matter the enormity of this fight that she loves me and that those moments would have been spent in love no matter what. So like I'm not terrified that this fight is going to be the last thing I remember because I'm going to remember her love more than I remember the fight. What does a typical night look like for relationship building? What kind of activities do you guys engage in where you say we feel closer now than we did before we started this activity? Honestly, just maybe a couple of weeks ago, we really started playing cards more than we used to. And I was like, this is a really weird thing for us to be doing because um, we're 20. So like, we play a lot of cribbage and a lot of speed and a lot of blackjack. And I feel like doing that is something that just brings us together because we have small conversations. We talk about each other's days, what we want to do tomorrow, what it looks like tomorrow. And it's just something that takes maybe five minutes to do, but it's time that's not spent doing anything else otherwise we're sitting in front of the you know tv on our computer in the same room but not engaging with each other and when we play cards it's something that we're doing one-on-one with our undivided attention honestly yeah and like i mean we're both very competitive so it brings out a lot of laughs like uh so in cribbage like i said you can steal points and like the second she's done i'm like i got this you have any more points that you missed and she's like no i wasn't done i was like you said you were done she's but i didn't i was like but you were done we know you were done and it's those small moments that i can look back and just be like hey the cards are out let's go play cribbage or like i really want to play speed tonight because i want to i want to hear about your day and not to say like we couldn't just sit down and intentionally talk about each other's day kind of like where i went back to that i want to have those family dinners because i remember talking about each other's day but until that's a pattern and a habit there's other small things we can do to learn about each other's day other than just okay i'm gonna sit here for 30 minutes and you're gonna tell me about your day it's i'm gonna sit here with you for maybe close to an hour depending on how many games we play or how many times we switch the game and we're gonna laugh and we're gonna make fun of each other first but i'm gonna find out that your boss did this today and my boss did that and this is why today sucked and tomorrow's gonna be better because my boss said we're gonna do that. like those small things even now that I'm married, like when I'm working my second job, it's at a bar. And so a lot of times there's drunk, drunk men or more who I'm nervous around. Even if they're talking, I'm not always going to say my wife wouldn't like that. And not because I don't want to say my wife, but it's like, I don't know how somebody's going to react, but I'd love for it to be commonplace just to say, no, I, you, you can't have my phone number. My wife wouldn't like that. Like instead of my partner or like those small things where I don't give her a gender. And it's not because I'm ashamed or embarrassed. But you never know what that, how that person's going to react. And it's like, I'm now I'm in a professional setting. But I think for me, that is the goal. In a professional setting, I should be able to say my wife and not be nervous. I think like Noah and I worked, we worked together. Um, and I don't think I was even nervous to say it because I was like, if you don't like it, that's not my problem. It's yours. And around here at the radio station, that isn't, it isn't, it is commonplace just to say my wife and nobody bats an eye. But I want to be able to use her pronouns and use her name and be very specific about the fact that I'm married to a woman and not have anyone treat me any different than if you were to say my wife. Is there anything that either of you find terribly offensive? Not really. I think that, especially in Grand Forks, I guess especially in North Dakota, um, people don't really know how to act around gay people. 
and I don't think that's their fault. And I would prefer them to ask me questions or to voice concerns so we can have a conversation about it. I guess it would be more offensive if they just assumed um, and didn't ask the questions and didn't say their opinions because we're all allowed to have our opinions, whether I agree with it or not. Um, I would much rather sit down and talk about it and see where somebody else is coming from and see what they are concerned about and questioning about me and my relationship and my lifestyle and my sexuality. And I think the thing is like, our lifestyle and even each of us as an individual was going to look different from the next person that's part of our community. Um, we're not all the same and we're not all going to feel the same way. You might say something to me and I'll be like, yeah, with me personally, that's okay. But somebody else will say, you can't say that you can't do that. Um, and I'm like Elena where I, I make it known that you can ask me your questions about me, about my community, about where I stand in my community. Um, and if somebody ever does say something that upsets me, offends me, I'll make sure you know. Or like a kind of a common one that I hear you hear a lot that people don't mean anything is they go, oh, that's so gay. And everyone just kind of turns to look at you and you just I just go same. And if they choose to feel shame or embarrassment, that's a small lesson for them. And if they come to me later on and say, like, I'm sorry, like it's like it is OK. Like you're learning. You've maybe never had to say that around a gay person before. But this is why it's not okay because my sexuality isn't a joke to me. My sexuality is who I am. It's a foundation of who I am. I guess it depends on in the way that they're saying it. If they're saying it in a hateful way, it's hateful. Um, but I think oftentimes people don't mean it that way. I just don't think people know any better. And so I guess at the end of the day, when people do say something like that, I, I kind of judge them. I I guess it's more upsetting and sad for them that they don't know any better and that nobody ever had that talk with them and that nobody ever told them right from wrong and how to treat people. I guess it's disappointing. Kind of what I was like, if you come to me and you just say it because you're joking around and you didn't mean it, it's neither. Like, you can be unintentionally homophobic, just like you can be unintentionally racist because you don't know better until somebody tells you. Um, but when you come to someone with that intention like in the ninth grade I had somebody to call me a dyke and I didn't know what the word meant at the time and then I looked it up and I cried like a baby but they meant it they wanted to hurt me they wanted without even me realizing I was gay like intentionally realizing I was gay at that time they were trying to project that on me and they meant it to be mean that is offensive and hurtful because they one they knew what the word meant even though I didn't and they meant it in the way that it was meant to hurt because there's words that we reclaim those words. We, can, I can say words that you can't. No offense, but I can because I'm reclaiming it. That doesn't mean I will or will I use them in your presence. But when I say it, if I were to talk to my friend and I were to use the F word, I'm probably joking and I'm in a good spirit to use it. And it's not hurtful or offensive because I'm using it to take back some of the power of the sting of that. That if you were to say it to me, that would sting. That would hurt a lot. See, and I disagree with Hannah. I think that anytime anybody uses a word like that F word... I think it's very ignorant and I think it's very disappointing that someone would choose that word to describe somebody when there's a million other words. If you think I'm dumb, then tell me I'm dumb. But knowing that word has so much hate behind it, I don't think anybody, gay, straight, bisexual, I don't think it should be used. I don't think it should be a part of anybody's vocabulary under any circumstance, regardless of if you're trying to take it back. It, it doesn't make sense to use it. And if you want it to stop and if you want the hatred behind it to stop, then the best way to do that is to stop using it. Do, would you 
Do you both consider yourself tolerant of other people's views? If you come across somebody that, for example, maybe believes that homosexuality is wrong or take the cake example, right? I'm sure that's something that comes up a lot. Um, What's your view on that? Do you mind if there's a cake owner that says, listen, I'll bake cakes. You can buy the cakes that are in the, the counter. I just won't custom make you one because I don't agree with your lifestyle. Yeah, I for me personally, I feel like I'm allowed to live how I want to live. So why can't somebody else live who they, how they want to live? So if I make you uncomfortable, then that's fine. And you're allowed to feel that way. But like I said, I want to sit down and be able to have a conversation about it. And I feel like that's very hard for people to do. It's hard for people to to not get upset about how another person feels. Whereas I feel like if we all were able to talk about how we felt um, and how we think about a certain topic, I think we'd probably realize that not everybody sucks like we think they do. Um, I don't think it's wrong for someone to feel different than I do. And I think it's important that we can sit down and talk about it. And at the end of the day, if we disagree, then that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't ever think anybody needs to change the way they feel for somebody. And I would say this is kind of where it goes. Like I said, nobody in the community is the same. Um, so a lot of, currently the hot topic is, is your sexuality a protected class? Um, you can be protected for your age, your sex, your, your skin color. Um, but you can be fired for being trans. You can be fired for being gay in the state of North Dakota still. Um, that kind of a thing. And not necessarily on the cake side, but if my boss were to come to me and say, you're fired because you have a wife, that would really suck because he's not going to come to you and say, you're fired because you're a man. Um, so I think a business side of it, I definitely think it should be different. I think while you have the right to refuse service to anyone, I think that like you wouldn't, you wouldn't refuse service to somebody because they're a man. Even if you're a dress shop, for the most part, you're probably not going to say, yeah, you can't buy this dress. Like, take, I'll take your money. I want your money. But if I were to come to you and you were to say, I don't want to be your friend because you're gay, that's different. That is, it's okay, not necessarily okay with me because, hey, I want to be your friend. I'm cool. I like having friends. But you're allowed to feel that way. I am allowed to make you uncomfortable and you're allowed to be uncomfortable. But as the business side of it, I think money is money and just be a business owner. What are some of the most common misconceptions people have about you as a couple? That one of us has to be the man. Like, I think my mom asked me who's going to do laundry and who's going to mow the the lawn. And it's like, I don't know. I guess it depends on the day. I don't think either of us wants to do either, but someone has to. So, yeah. Um, I think another misconception along that line is I dress more masculine. I know through this podcast, you can't tell that, but I dress more masculine, but I'm also more touchy feely, at least like, when I want to be touchy-feely, like in public, I have no problem laying my head on Elena's shoulder or wrapping my arm around her waist, where a lot of times that would be the woman's role. But surprise, I am a woman. I want to be comforted. I want comfort. I want contact. What do we teach kids about homosexuality and or alternative lifestyles? Is it a function of just when they ask questions, we give them answers? Is it, do you think that it should be taught in public schools that there are multiple acceptable ways to have a relationship how do we go about the process and at what age do we introduce children into the growing complex world of sexuality i think the thing is is with sexuality it doesn't have to be sexualized so you're not going to tell your three-year-old what mommy and daddy do in the bedroom but they know that mommy and daddy love each other but for us whatever names you're 
same gendered couple goes by if it's mom and mama mommy and mama whatever they choose you don't have to tell them what they're doing in the bedroom just that those are their parents those are the two people that love them very much and so i think the age you think your child is old enough to understand mommy and daddy love you ashley down the streets mommies love ashley um there's plenty of resources on that and i think it's just one of those things where if you don't make a big deal kids are very receptive like I mean, I think Elena's cousins, or her nieces and nephews, I'm sorry, uh, her nieces and nephews like didn't bat an eye when I was introduced to them. They're just like, oh, Elena, Auntie Elena, kisses girls, like that's the thing. And because nobody made a big deal of it. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's what it is. Um, and making sure that they realize that some girls kiss girls is okay, is okay. They're not going to question it until you question it. I think for kids struggling with their sexuality to sit through a health class and not know where they fit in in that conversation for sex ed um i think it's probably going to be very confusing for them someday and whether or not parents want their kids to be part of that discussion i would much rather have my kids be safe when that time does come um i guess for me and i would hope for most people i would rather my kid ask questions and have someone to talk to about rather than assume that this is how it should be and not know what is going on and then have it become something that's life-threatening and and could really do some damage. If you were that resource, if there is the next 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old girl that's coming up and she is starting to question her sexuality and she's listening to this, what would you want that, what would you want her to know? It's okay. It is okay. You're not weird. You're not broken. You're worthy of love. I think those are the things that I wanted to hear. Um, And just that there's a community that's ready for you and we're accepting you. And you don't have to be out and loud and proud. You can be as far in the closet as you want. But we're here and we accept you and we support you. I guess I wish that I would have known that whether I, I was going to realize that I was straight bisexual, gay, trans, I'm the same. I'm going through the same changes and I'm wondering the same things that any other kid is, whether they are straight, gay, bisexual, or trans. We're all going through the same thing. We all change in the same way. Our bodies and our minds will all wonder the same thing. Um, And there's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, Another one, I guess, would be that your label can change. Uh, when I first came out, I came out as bisexual. I think part of that was to make it easier for people um, because I had dated a man and it also made it easier for my parents to accept that maybe someday I would end up with a man again, even though in my heart I knew that wasn't true. Um, your label can change as many times as you want and you don't have to be ashamed about changing it because your sexuality is fluid. Um, and as you do your research, like you'll find that there's so many, so many labels that Yes, I tell people I'm a lesbian, but like that's really not where I fall on the spectrum. But I tell you I'm a lesbian because I'm a woman who loves women. Um, So I'll use the word queer as my identifier because it just encompasses everything that I feel and what I feel in that particular time when somebody asks me. What does the process of getting kids look like for you two? You've talked about wanting to start a family and obviously there are certain physiological barriers to having kids the traditional way. So what does that process look like for you two? 
Unfortunately, it looks expensive, very expensive. Um, so when that money comes along, I suppose we'll probably do in vitro and I will carry. Even if you adopt, they're not biological. You love them with your heart, even though they're not of your flesh. They are of like your spirit. Um, and so as I, as I've grown up, as I said earlier, like I dress more masculine. I do have more masculine tendencies. Um, as I've grown up and grown into being an adult, I've decided like, I don't want to be pregnant. Even if I was currently with a man, I want a child. I want to have a family. I don't want to be pregnant. And so I think for us, Elena, like I said, we were looking at having a donor um, and she'll carry and she'll also be my surrogate because we want to have a child that comes from each of us. That's very cool. If, if adoption wasn't a twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar proposition and wasn't a ten year prospect, would that be more appealing to you? Probably. I have always wanted to be pregnant. Uh, I thought it'd be like a cool thing to do. I don't know, like a wild experience. So I did for sure want to have a child on my own, but I'd also want to adopt because, like Hannah said, it doesn't matter if it's mine biologically. It's mine, and I would love that child no matter what i think relationships are complex no matter what gender you are or who you're dating or any of those things but they can be very very rewarding i've learned that in this relationship finding the person you want to spend the rest of your life with isn't always easy and knowing that you can rely on them no matter what grow together and spend every day with the person you love the most makes the journey worthwhile I hope you enjoyed episode two. For more resources on marriage and relationships, I invite you to check out our website, schoolofhardknocks.show. And we'll be back on the 1st of December for another in-depth journey right here on the School of Hard Knocks.